Hey everybody, this is Molly. Um, We are doing a different episode this week because of the COVID-19 crisis. So we're going to sound a little different because we are all in different locations and having to record over the phone. Um, Lorraine, are you there? I am here. Hi, Molly. Hello, Bill. It's so good to hear from you both today. So good to hear your voice. Um, I thought we'd start today just checking in with each other because we can't see each other in person, which is very different than our normal episodes. So, Lorraine, how are you doing? <sighs> Overall, I would say I'm doing well, mainly because I've had some years of practice with mindfulness and meditation and self-awareness, and it is coming in handy so well right now. Uh, as much time that I have spent in my meditation practices right now, I'm seeing how the practicing of the breathing has been so helpful because due to my trauma of being isolated and having uh, someone threaten my life if I wanted to go outside, even though it's still that opportunity to go outside, there's still like this tricky part in my my thoughts that are telling me um, like there's there's a real fear when I look at the doorknob and I have to do these breathing techniques that brings me back to this is a different time. And although there's still lots of messaging of it's safer at home, <laughs> hmm. just being present with knowing that things are different now and managing work from home teaching from home and home from home, it's a balancing act. How are you? How are you doing? Yeah, I'm finding the same thing that doing everything from home, working from home, trying to teach my kids, dealing with the homeschooling. um, It's just a lot to manage it all. And it's been an intense period. Work has been bananas. Um, I I don't know any other way to describe it, Um, what the homeless system in L.A. is trying to do in a matter of weeks, you know, the kind of work that would normally take us a few years we're trying to do in weeks. Um, And so work's been really intense, a lot of 12-hour days. I'm working out of my garage, um, and my kids are in our house, which is above our garage, and they're, you know, struggling because they need a lot of support to deal with the online learning. A lot of tech support. I'm having to do long division. Mm-hmm. So it's been an intense period um, trying to balance all the demands of the homeschooling and work and trying to figure out how to also take care of myself. I feel like I'm having to sort of relearn everything about life right now and how to manage in this crisis. Everything is very different. Lorray, what are things looking like for you in terms of work? Have you been able to keep working during this period or have things slowed down? Things have slowed down. There's this interesting way of understanding like community organizing and advocacy and how that looks when community is having to transition in the way that we come together. Normally, it's being in the same space. It's being able to be present with folks and hear what's going on with them, see what they look like to be able to really have a good check-in with how life is showing up for them and, and being able to help them in understanding 
what policy and systems and how they could be evolved and how they get to take action and, and just making that understandable in person, it already comes with its own challenges. Now it's sitting through many conference calls, through many webinars and collecting this information and now trying to find time in between these calls to be in communication with advocates and with community And now it's also looking a lot different for how I find a means to making money. So I'm looking at how do I support lived experience where I'm not really getting uh, opportunities to go out and to speak. So how do I get opportunities to uplift the voice of lived experience through possible webinars or consultations and sending out proposals to see how organizations are supporting their lived experience staff members and finding a way to propose it in such a way that that I have the capacity to have calls with their lived experience so that I could make some income come in and still have the capacity to uh, sit back and collect all this information from the webinars and the conference calls. And it is, it's fun. It's different. And with having to teach her at the same time, it is, it it could be a pretty high stress, but uh, I'm learning a whole lot when it comes to technology. That's for sure. How's work coming for you? Because I know being in the world of government is like full-fledged, always constant, and having the home and the government and how to respond to the COVID, I'm pretty sure your life is looking real different. How is that showing up for you? Yeah, I'm finding that it's really one day at a time that I have days where it's manageable to be doing it all. Um, And I've had to learn a lot of tricks because I am working out of a garage and it's kind of depressing. And if I spend 12 hours in the garage, I get to the end of those 12 hours and I'm not sure I want to keep going on. So I've had to learn to like, if I'm doing a conference call where I don't have to say a lot, trying to like walk in the neighborhood just to get some sunshine And, you know, just trying to squeeze out any time I can to get some time with my kids. So if there's a one hour break in the day, making sure I'm spending that with the kids and not answering emails, because I could be answering emails, you know, 16 hours a day right now. Um, And so I'm just having to sort of learn boundaries in a whole new way so that I can actually get some breaks from work and see my family and see sunshine Um, and a little greenery. That's like what's sort of saving me right now. I'm also somebody who really gets a lot out of communication that's face-to-face and being able to read people's facial expressions and body language and hear the tone of their voice um, in person. And so learning how to communicate and understand what's sort of under people's words when you're doing everything through these conference calls and webinars Um, It's a new skill (laughs) set. I'm not sure I'm so good at it, Um, but I'm trying to learn it and figure it out because it is so different. 
I mean, I think there's also some grief because there's a lot that we lose mm. when we're not in person. Um, and I think it is harder to make space and be as inclusive when we're doing everything through webinars and conference calls. You know, it's the extroverted um, sort of alpha folks who say a lot on the calls and the folks who are introverted but might have really good information or who might not be as confident as some of those other folks. Like we don't get to hear from them at all. So it's really hard to figure out how to create inclusive spaces mm. using technology to do everything. Agreed, agreed. I also hear that there's the struggle with folks having access to the technology, having access to phones, having access to uh, Wi-Fi. And so reaching the community is really looking different right now. Yeah, and even just having access to a quiet place. I'm lucky that we have this garage home office, even though it's dank and a little depressing, <laughs> at least it's quiet. But I recognize a lot of folks, you know, are in their apartment with their kids and it is so hard trying to do conference calls or webinars in a room with your kids. Um, you know, and I'm lucky I've got two 11 year olds. <laughs> They're a little sensitive to when I'm working, but with even younger kids, I can't even imagine. I feel like we're talking a lot about the challenges, but I also feel like this time there's also opportunities that we're seeing. So I'm curious, Larray, what's making you hopeful during this time? Yeah, I was just doing some reflection and I've shared with you before that I haven't really been able to cook and because of things slowing down, um, I've been back in the kitchen and the children are spending some time at the table again. So um, I'm hopeful that families are connecting and with that connection, uh, folks are able to see the needs of the family members as individuals and as the family. Like, what are people contributing to their family being cohesive and, and working? I'm also very close to the conversations about the equity. So I'm really hopeful about there being some health equity because before it was a known factor that if you were born in a certain zip code, it was very likely that you would have greater uh, risk of health factors. And there's a lot of conversations about the need for equity, for racial equity, for health equity. Uh, so I'm, I'm super hopeful that now things are moving fast and folks are being put into some type of shelter, right? I'm hopeful that it doesn't end there, that we'll continue to look at how schools are equitably being structured for all th children to thrive. I'm hopeful for how the facilities that are ministering our health needs, that they'll be resourced equitably, and uh, also that there's a, a leveling in the way that employment uh, rolls out once folks do get to go back to work and just looking at how things are no longer the normal, where 
me myself, I can speak to how it felt like everything needed to be perfect before I spoke on an idea or before I brought an idea to the table. And now everyone is like getting to this point of innovation, even to funders and um, the way that organizations are looking at how they uh, provide services. It's this really innovative, like jump into it, see how it works and apologize later if needed. And most of the time, what I'm seeing is that there's no need for the apology is more so the reflection that, oh, I really wish that there wasn't so much pressure on things being perfect before taking action. And I'm I'm excited and hopeful to see how this continues because we now know for a fact that taking action doesn't have to be like fully laid out with first it needs to look like this, then you need to have this documented and you have to have this approval and have to have everyone agree. But let's just get into the taking action because when power and love is in balance, then most likely the end result will be one that is powerful in love. Yeah, I totally agree. There's that quote about don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Mm. And I think a lot of times we overanalyze things and it creates paralysis and it stops us from moving forward. And I think the most exciting thing about the pandemic is that we have to move really fast and we have to let go of all of the expectation of doing things perfectly, of not making mistakes. Um, That's a big thing in government. Government is very risk averse and we are afraid to move swiftly um, in case there's a bad newspaper article or, you know, whatever could go wrong. Everything government does is very public. And so with the crisis, we can't worry about that anymore. We just have to plow forward and dive into the work. And that means doing things quickly, um, like you were saying, not asking for permission, just going forward. Um, And what we're seeing is that we're able to help a lot of people because of that. And I'm hopeful that that will be a lesson that we can work in this different way. And I also am thinking a lot about inequity right now. And just knowing how much the crisis is impacting different communities and just hoping that this pandemic is opening people's eyes. There was an article I was reading where somebody was saying, you know, black folks aren't dying because the COVID-19 virus discriminates. Black folks are dying because we live in a racist country. And there's opportunity to hopefully open people's eyes to, you know, racial and economic inequities. And how do we, when we're rebuilding, when we shift into recovery, um, how do we address those inequities and use this opportunity to do something meaningful um, and not just perpetuate those inequities? You know, and I see it just in terms of homeschooling with my kids the education gap coming out of this period, I can't even imagine because it looks really different for families where two parents are working versus families where a parent can sit down with a kid and help them through their schoolwork all day. You know, kids are learning at very different levels during this. Um, And I just feel like that's true of everything. The economic impact, the health impacts are so different can we use the recovery from the pandemic to try and address some of those inequities 
Um, you know, and I'm hopeful, you know, we are, and we'll be hearing about this from some of our guests on the show today. There's a lot of people getting off the streets right now because the risk of the virus to people who are homeless is so tremendous that it has the potential to impact our entire health system. And so there's resources to get people off the streets, which is amazing. Um, but it would be tragic if we bring people inside during the pandemic and then we put them back out on the sidewalks where they're at risk of a million other things that could kill them afterwards. I think a lot of us are just crossing our fingers that if we get thousands of people off the streets, that there will be an opportunity to provide ongoing support um, so that people can use this as a period to move them towards exiting homelessness instead of going back out to the sidewalks afterwards, um, which is an amazing opportunity. And I think there's also an amazing opportunity around homelessness prevention because we have so many people who have lost their jobs and are going to struggle to pay rent. And I think there's incredible opportunities around stronger tenant protections, around rental assistance, around, you know, all these different tools we could use um, so that those financial hardships don't lead to homelessness. So it's this interesting period because like so many challenges, it's so scary and also so many opportunities. There's so much we can do with this moment to really transform our city. So I'm trying to stay hopeful and optimistic that we'll take advantage of some of those opportunities. We'll see what happens. Our first segment today is with Gloria Johnson, an advocate, case manager, and housing navigator here in Los Angeles. Uh, my name is Gloria Johnson. I am the lived experience advisory board, uh, one of the co-chairs at LASA. I also um, work as a housing um, navigator slash housing case manager and um, social services. I grew up um, in a single parent household raised by my grandmother, my mother, a teenage parent. She had me at 14 and she went on to become drug addicted from the, her age of 18 to almost her last days, which was in uh, April 2018. I always had that sense of not really understanding what it took to live a stable life after my grandmother passed at the age of 12. So um, I went on through life thinking that I had all the answers. So at 18, um, I graduated high school six months early. I moved to San Diego and I thought that um, my life was going to work out well. <laughs> I had my son at 18 and a half and turned around and, and had got pregnant again and have my second son at 19 and a half. And um, I was in um, an abusive relationship and it caused me to, um, I was too embarrassed to go to my family. We lived in the same complex to tell them my story. So I ended up just making an excuse to move from San Diego where my family was to Los Angeles where um, my foster mother stayed. And I stayed with her for a little bit. And um, until, you know, one day she just put everybody out. And so I had to stay with a friend um, here and there. I still have my, my two young boys. They were two and three years old. I stayed um, in a garage a couple of nights. Um, at that time, I didn't even have a car. And then I stayed with my best friend, slept on her couch and her floor for a little bit. And then I just kind of bounced around. I tried to gain housing on my own. It was kind of hard because... My income, it was just myself. And I was working as a nursing assistant 12 hours a day, five days a week, 
So that was like 60 hours a week just to try to have enough money to have an apartment. Um, so when I did, I got us our first apartment in um, L.A. County and we had nothing. We didn't even have a refrigerator. We didn't have furniture. We had like blow up kid furniture that we used as a pillow. Um, and we lived like that for a couple of months until, um, you know, I was able to get enough money to get some things to live and then fell behind on my bills. Um, my car got repoed so I couldn't go to work and then I got evicted. So um, I end up moving in with a friend that lived in a projects. Being there three weeks into it, someone breaks into our house. They clip the bars to break into the house. And the person I was staying with just didn't feel stable. So she wanted to move. So that left me um, without a place to live again. So I had to go back to San Diego. And I couldn't stay with family. So I ended up staying with a family friend. And back working, still doing nursing, assisting. Um, I was doing hospice care, which is very, very tough. Um, along the lines of me being at work, um, I get a call and they say that my my oldest son, who was a baby, had um, walked into a pothole um, in front of the garage and a um, family member went to park their car and ran him over. And the guilt I felt for being at work and knowing that if I was at home, that wouldn't happen to my son was a bit too much. So I struggled a lot with um, depression, anxiety, and not really having anyone to talk to or go to to discuss it. Um, it just caused me to go spiral downhill. And even though um, I might not have substance abuse issues, I fell into other addictions that um, caused me to be very irresponsible with my money. Um, which caused me, once I did get another apartment, I lost it again. So the, here it is. I have um, two male children at this time. They're uh, 11 and 12 at this time. And and I have nowhere for us to go. I had two um, evictions, two repos. And I remember a good friend of mine, was. Um, she had a computer and she said she was putting her mother's name on the, the wait list for low-income housing in Section 8. And did I want her to put my information on there? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, she was like, but, you know, you working. So, you know, maybe they'll, you know, call you. So um, as life got rough and I was going here or there, I tried to go into a shelter because my son was 12. He could not stay with me um, and I couldn't let him be in um, a unit by himself because my um, oldest son, because of the car accident he was in, he has a post-traumatic brain injury. So he's mentally delayed. So he's uh, significantly disabled. So I couldn't let my son just um, be alone. And, you know, and I had a responsibility to care for him and he needed extra care. So I went back to working really, really hard, two jobs. So I worked seven days a week for like five months straight. I would take two weeks off and then go right back at it um, just so I could live. And then three years to the day, I got a letter saying that my application came up and to bring my information into the office for low-income housing. And so at this time, I was living in Paramount. I was not familiar with Los Angeles. I was a little afraid, but they gave me, after everything was said and done, I was worried that they weren't going to give me the apartment because I had two evictions. And my credit was, I had a credit score of like 250. And I was just really afraid. And they just told me, um, yes, you have an outstanding light bill, but if you pay that, we'll give you the apartment. And that was such the break that I needed because I was just 
in my mind kept telling myself like this is going to be the reason for no instead of motivating myself and and staying optimistic at that time I just thought like oh it's going to be another blow it's not going to go through but that one break is all that it took you know and I moved in and I ended up staying there I had some issues with one unit in the same complex they moved me to another one in the back and um, I stayed there for 10 and a half, 11 years. Um, I was not accustomed to South LA, but I got accustomed. You know, I still did all, you know, my shopping in other areas, but my um, I raised my two young sons there. They never got in trouble with the police, never got in trouble with gangs. Um, but for me, I still wanted to give back. So I promised myself when I got that break that I was going to make good of it. So I went back to college after I gained some time, sense of stability, paying my bills on time and kind of like fixing, getting me another car and being able to get around. I was able to go back to college and I just never stopped, even though, you know, I, I got pregnant with my daughter. And right when I was about to graduate with my associate degree, um, at the same time, I took up pharmacy tech. I just tried to just educate myself as much as possible on how programs work, how systems work, how could I be a blessing to others because I was so blessed to to be where I was at. After my social degree, I got accepted into Cal State Dominguez Hills. I went there after I had my daughter. I was I had just got out the hospital. I was sick in the hospital for three weeks. And um, right after, one week after being out the hospital and having a new baby, I went started at Dominguez Hills at uh, with 16 units, 16 units in I was proud to graduate with a 3.0 grade um, average um, a whole year early. And it was like, what are you going to do with this degree? Um, and I was um, approached about this program called the Jumpstart program. And it trained you. It's a free program. And they train you to um, to go into entry level employment with the county and things like that or a nonprofit. So I was going to go into the program, but I had got a call for a job and I started working in veteran outreach and housing. And ever since then, it just gave me some sense of joy to really be able to share my story with some people who feel like, okay, no, they're going to tell me a no again. They're going to tell me no again. It's going to be another door shut. But for me to let people know my story and that how many doors I thought was going to be shut and how many times People tried to shame me into saying that I was going to be a statistic and I was going to end up like my mother. I was going to have a whole lot of kids and and no um, father. I was just down all my life. But but I say, look where I'm at now, you know, and sometimes you have to build your own circle of security and success because some people feel like, OK, if I have a lot of money, I have this it's success. But I say just being able to live and not worry about having a roof over my head or worry about being abused or worry about being um, clinically depressed all the time and having so bad anxiety that I don't want to go out. That's my form of success, me being able to give back and know that at least one person that I can touch and to help them, give them the help and navigation that no one helped me and I had to figure it out on my own. But to be able to help people is such a joy. And that's what really led me to being a strong advocate and helping people to understand that we all have our own challenges and it's okay for me to be different and not to understand what makes my mind tick or yours tick. 
but just to understand that we all need some sense of stability and what stability looks like for me does not look the same for you. And by me being someone who's been through a lot, I'm able to see that and understand that and have more empathy and um, and actually to have more joy in what I do to see someone who's never had an apartment of their own ever to have their own apartment and furniture and being able to know how it feels to check their own mail to see how they feel just to see they get their first light bill things like that is what keeps me going and it keeps me grounded in saying that you know tomorrow is going to be okay with the COVID-19 and everything that is going on with that the way that it makes me feel as a service provider and an advocate I'm happy in a sense, and then I'm sad in the other sense. And the reason why um, I have those mixed feelings is because um, my mother was homeless um, all her life. And um, and even though she was connected to services, because I can, you know, try my best to connect her to services. And she was very ill and she was trying to get treatment and she was ignored. And to the point where she was found um, laid out in the um, street bleeding. And then she finally um, was seen by another doctor that said, you know what, she has stage four oral cancer. So now that when I see something so serious like this, the COVID-19 and so many people are putting all hands on deck um, and we're really working, trying to make sure people have a place to go that is clean, that is safe, that we're not turning a, a blind eye to their medical conditions um, and keeping those that are not sick safe. That brings me joy. And my mother's, you know, looking down right now saying, you know, kudos, you know, because some people get caught up in being frustrated that they didn't reap a certain reward of a program coming to pass. But I'm just happy to see that people took it serious and started to move really, really fast. And I'm, I'm glad that we're really looking after our people, our brothers and sisters that are unsheltered on the street. Thank you to Gloria for sharing your story with us. COVID-19 presents a terrible risk to people who are experiencing homelessness. Sheltering in place is impossible when you don't have a home. Washing your hands and social distancing can be out of the question. To add to the challenge, many resources that were lifelines like libraries, fast food restaurants, and churches are closed. People experiencing homelessness face far greater risks from the virus because life on the streets causes wide variety of underlining health conditions like asthma and hypertension that really makes the virus more deadly. For the first time, there was greater awareness that all of our fates are linked together. Protecting public health means ensuring everyone, especially the most vulnerable among us, are protected from the virus transmission. To understand how LA is addressing COVID-19 for people experiencing homelessness, we invited Valicia Adams, the Executive Director of St. Joseph Center, and Heidi Marston, the Interim Executive Director of the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, to share what they're doing. Felicia, it is so great to have you on the Housing Justice Podcast. Thanks for making time to join Lorraine and I. I know it is a crazy time for all of us. 
why don't we start um, and why don't you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what your role is at St. Joseph Center? Great. Well, thank you so much, Molly and Lorraine, for having me. My name is Dr. Valicia Adams-Kellum, and I'm the president and CEO of St. Joseph Center. But that's not just the only part of who I am. I'm a mom and a wife and a daughter. I'm an African-American leader in Los Angeles, and I've had the privilege of leading St. Joseph Center for over 12 years. St. Joseph Center has been serving low-income and homeless individuals, though, for over 40 years. And so I started in 2008. Our main areas of service are outreach and engagement, housing, mental health, and education, and vocational services. So I'm really proud of the work that we're doing. And we know now more than ever how important our services are as we are essential services and critical to decreasing the number of homeless people that are impacted by COVID-19. Uh, thanks for being a part of this podcast. As Molly has said, it is a pleasure knowing what is all come up and how many things that are to be juggled at this time. And with it being this COVID crisis and a lot of responding, what are your specific goals right now? Well, it's a challenging time because the work we do is always critical in the way of making sure that people have adequate food, adequate housing, services, mental health assistance. And it just seems like we have to triple our efforts in order to make sure that we decrease the impact of this very deadly virus on vulnerable people in the communities that we serve. You know, my main goals are to support my staff and the clients that are out there who rely on St. Joseph Center. We've seen a 70% increase in folks coming to our food pantry and getting emergency bags and an 80% increase in people relying on our to-go meals from our Bread and Roses Cafe. I feel the need to instill hope in our clients and in our staff and our partners. There's a lot of innovating going on right now, and I want to see the ideas continue, and I feel a sense of responsibility to make sure that we don't let up. And whatever we're doing now that is saving lives and making a difference, I want to keep doing it. I'm just trying my best to not walk in fear and to remain hopeful. I feel really inspired. I'm working really, really long days. But my team is out there as well. I mean, most of St. Joseph Center is essential. So it means I have people working remotely and I have people in the field. And it's, it's a real intense time. Can you share a little bit about the challenges of working in this environment? There's so much need. And I feel like there's also these incredible barriers to doing our work right now. Well, certainly. I was talking to someone who's also in our field, and everything we do is about connection. You know, outreach workers get on their knees and sometimes connect with a person who's homeless, like face-to-face. And when you know that you have to keep a social distance and yet connect, we're just finding new and different ways to do that. When you're wearing a mask, it's got to be in your eyes. You know, people have to be able to see your smile in your eyes to let them know that it's okay and that they can trust us. And it's really hard. You know, I'm, I'm motivating my staff via phone, via Zoom. I mean, it's incredible. And certainly 
There are people who can't work right now. They have children at home. They have conditions, uh, health conditions that make them very vulnerable to the virus, so they need to stay quarantined and safe. And so we've got more and more work than ever, really, and not enough people to do the work. And obviously, PPEs and all the things that make us safe in the field are, are always limited. So there's a balancing act. I want to move swiftly, and I believe we have. And sometimes um, the answer is yes, but I don't know who's going to be around to do the work because our teams are so stretched. The, the acronym that you used, do you mind uh, repeating that and um, making it clear for us of what that acronym is? It was PPE. Valicia, do you want to explain PPE? Yeah, I'm probably not the best one to explain PPE, but I did say PPE, which is um, personal protective equipment. And we've heard and seen on the news that there's a limited amount of protective gear for frontline staff. And obviously, the first and primary group would be nurses and doctors and those in the health field. And so for outreach teams and folks who are doing face-to-face work with individuals who are homeless, we need gear as well. We need protective equipment as well. And yet, you know, we need to make sure that the equipment goes to those who are right on the front line and in the hospitals. Yet we do need our own stock. And so we're grateful to United Way and some other partners who have made it possible for us to get some equipment because that's essential to ensuring that people who are on the front line doing the work of social services and essential services do not become ill. I think that's also a great illustration of one of the incredible challenges of working in this period is that we've all had to learn the language of emergency management. PPE is an emergency management acronym, and there are an endless array of new terms and new acronyms and new systems. I have to confess, I didn't know anyone who worked in emergency management before this crisis. And I think we've had to learn all these new systems really fast uh, to respond to this crisis. Yes, Molly, you make a really good point because I had to create a task force within my nonprofit agency to address an emergency that was growing and growing in nature. We we didn't know what we would need to do to protect our staff, to protect clients. Early on, none of us really knew what this would look like. And so we were trying to figure out what would it look like to maintain our services offline, online, from home. You know, not all staff have adequate internet. We've had to invest in a number of different systems just to make sure that care uh, continues and is at the level that it needs to be. You said they have to see it in your eyes. They have to see the smile in your eyes. And I feel that uh, because connection is so vital and learning that there's a culturally specific way of connecting with people and them being able to feel like the way that services are being handed will work for them. There's a lot of learning that's happening around that. And that was before the COVID. And now that we're in this pandemic, how are you seeing the racial disparities uh, changing? And how do you see this impact being addressed during the pandemic? Well, one of the first things that really hit me was when we were working with the task force and started to outline who could work from home. 
And a racial equity lens requires that we examine that question and to see if there are disparities even in the way that things play out. And we could clearly see that a lot of people who could work from home were actually people with degrees. And at St. Joseph's Center, we have a lot of diversity and we've been working on that. But I was sad to see that so many of the folks that were on the front line who didn't have jobs that translated to working from home were people of color, our security guards, a lot of our outreach workers, a lot of the folks that serve in the cafe. Oh, we're a diverse organization, but still we have to recognize who's on the front line. And we know that's also contributed to the disproportionate number of Black people dying. And so when I saw that disparity emerge, I was immediately moved to do something. I didn't know what to do, but I started to wonder if somehow a pay differential, a hazard pay, some way to honor the sacrifice and reward people who were out there on the front line. And we did work with the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority and our other partner organizations and the county officials and city officials to say we've got to do something to support the people on the front line and we are paying a differential hazard pay. And I'm so so happy that we've been able to do that because the disparity of who gets to work from home and who does not is um, something we, we can't ignore. And then when we see who's being impacted by the virus, we see across the country that there's an overrepresentation of people of color who are dying, who are getting sick from the virus and, and not making it. You know, we've seen the numbers in Louisiana and Illinois. Louisiana is, what, 32% of the population and 70% of the deaths. And uh, Illinois, 15% of the population, 42% of the deaths. And I was looking at our own numbers here in L.A., 15% are African-American, though black people only make up 9% of the population. 17% are Asian, making up 15% of the population, 34% are Latinx, making up 39% of the general population, 31% are white, making up 36% of our general population. And so you see this disparity uh, again in who is dying from the virus. So I have been fortunate to have seen a lot of the expansion of diversity with St. Joseph Center through your leadership. And with the addressing the racial equity and involvement of lived experience, how do you see the collaborative efforts with lived experience and addressing racial equity being of value for systems change and for housing solutions? Well, as you know, one of the key insights that came out of the ad hoc committee report on Black people experiencing homelessness is the importance of including Black people with lived experience in program and policy design, implementation, evaluation, and service delivery. And I believe that that is critically important to doing good work, whether we're working with Black people or not. I think it's very important that we include people who've lived it and get it. And I'm looking forward to collaboration at all levels of our organization and promoting people with lived experience to the highest levels of executive leadership within St. Joseph Center because it's the right thing to do and it will make us better at this work. 
And the way I think to inspire and coach and mentor people with lived experience who work for my agency is to partner with folks even like you, Lorraine, who can inspire folks, train them up, give them insights. I think Black people, we live with a lot of fear, especially if there's trauma. Lord, we're going to make mistakes, say the wrong thing, and maybe it will keep us from excelling. And I think we need to be there for folks with lived experience and use folks with lived experience to train, educate the entire organization. You know, my executives, I need folks with lived experience to train all of us and to be there for people with lived experience who want to be in management and leadership and to help guide them and help them to be successful. And we only do that through collaboration and through kind of honest, meaningful engagement about race and the impact of racial trauma and the difficulties that Black people who are homeless and been homeless and now working in our organizations, what they feel, what they worry about, and the help that they might need from us to excel. I'm curious, Felicia, what are the lessons you've learned during this period? I've heard it described as we're doing two years of work in two months. Um, It's a very, very intense period. And are there lessons that have emerged for you through this process? I've always felt that connection was part of the healing process and part of the work. I've always felt a deep sense of connection to people. And I believe that the connection that we have to one another will be what gets us through. It's true that we're doing things in one week that we've taken months to do in the past. It shows me what we're capable of. It shows me what we can do when we set our minds to something. We opened the first West Side Hotel in less than a week. We set up some trailers in South Los Angeles in three weeks a couple of months ago, right before this all hit. We might have hoped to do that in two years, (laughs) a year or two ago. And so I believe that our system is more capable than we realized. I think we see there's more resources available that we can use to end homelessness. And I hope we just stay the course. And like I said, whatever we have done during this terrible crisis, I want us to keep doing and save lives because we realize that this is a public health crisis that was made worse by the level of homelessness and despair that's out there. And how might you see the future being different after this crisis? Well, sadly, there's going to be more people struggling than ever. But we already are seeing what happens when communities come together, what systems can do, what cross-system collaboration yields. I hope that we're going to see more use of repurposed space, you know, some organizations are going to realize it makes more sense to work from home. (laughs) Maybe some buildings will be made available and we can repurpose those spaces to serve the homeless, to house the homeless, to train the homeless. We're going to have to do that. There's a lot of luxury spaces, vacation homes and hotels that it may take some time for them to be up and running again. And I hope we'll be able to use those spaces I hope that there will be some hotels that will realize that it makes more sense for them to keep being of service and that whatever the repurposing looked like that they 
stay the course and make that a permanent way in which they operate. I believe workforce development is critically important now. It was critically important before the pandemic and it will be more important as we go forward. People will find themselves in jobs that maybe they hadn't dreamed of going forward. Look at how much we're able to do with Zoom. I think that we need to be innovative and think outside the box around how people earn a living. And we know now a lot of work can be done outside of a brick and mortar space. I think we'll be more efficient. We must be more mindful. We must use a racial equity lens to save lives because if we had used more of a racial equity lens before now, it's possible we could have saved the life and so many lives of black and brown people across the country. So I hope we'll learn from this really dark time. That's a really beautiful conclusion. We really appreciate you being on the podcast today and are so grateful for the incredible work you and your team are doing. I know it's exhausting and you guys are heroes. So thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning. How are you this morning, Heidi? Doing well. How are you? I am well as well. It is such a joy to have you here on the Housing Justice Los Angeles podcast. Let's start off with you telling us a bit of who you are and what you do. I'm Heidi Marston. I am the Interim Executive Director for the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority. Uh, So our role is a joint powers between the city and the county of Los Angeles, charged with overseeing our community's response to homelessness. And Heidi, can you tell us during this pandemic what the goals of LASA have been? Absolutely. So we've had a few goals throughout LASA. Our first goal really started from the outreach side, so making sure that our folks who are out there um, on the streets interacting with people every day are poised with the information that they need. They're equipped with um, the health and safety equipment that they need, as well as uh, the resources that they need to share with people to ensure that folks know what was going on, um, how to keep themselves safe, how to keep everyone around them safe, and where, most importantly, they could access these hygiene services. So ramping up that outreach was really our first goal going into this. The second goal was to ensure we weren't going to lose our existing capacity to shelter people, um, recognizing that this crisis has had a massive impact um, across our entire community and our nonprofit providers are no exception to that. So as folks saw their staffing decrease with people needing to be home for family reasons or for health reasons, um, our ability to make sure that we weren't losing beds um, was really, really critical as at the same time we are trying to build new and ramp up new capacity. So um, sustaining what we have and not losing was and is our second goal. Um, The third goal we have is to increase our capacity, both shelters that are more of a congregate setting as well as sheltering options for people who need to shelter in place and self-isolate because of their high risk. Uh, And then the fourth and final goal of LASA is to 
ensure we're doing everything we can to um, learn from this experience, um, build momentum from it that's irreversible as we come out on the other side of it and not accepting going back to status quo in terms of what our streets look like and what the the homelessness crisis looks like in LA. So how do we take this opportunity and build from it and really make some tremendous progress in addressing the homelessness crisis in LA County? Can you talk a little bit about that third goal and what it's looking like to try and stand up um, additional sheltering options? Absolutely. So this is our Project Room Key effort. Uh, This is a statewide effort, but LA is um, really taking it head on. And what it looks like is identifying hotels and motels across our county um, that we can essentially master lease and place people in these hotels and motels, um, not only with the services that they need, but with the health monitoring that they need to make sure that they don't contract the virus. Um, The folks who are really targeted for this effort are those who are the most vulnerable, recognizing everybody experiencing homelessness has vulnerability um, and is exposed. But the CDC has put out guidance around the most highly vulnerable individuals being those that if they were to contract the virus, they would likely become hospitalized and die. Those individuals who are over 65 years old or, or have chronic underlying medical conditions that make them more susceptible. So uh, we estimate we have at least 15,000 people, probably more than that, um, in our population of people experiencing homelessness who qualify for these rooms. And so that's our goal is to get 15,000 rooms countywide so folks can go inside. And this is really part of the, the beauty of what this has done is it's created this momentum. Within seven days, our system not only put close to 1,800 hotel rooms under lease, but we filled these rooms and within seven days we had over 500 people in hotels and motels that came from our shelters that needed to be decongested. They came directly from our streets. Um, And these people are going into hotel rooms with their own bathroom, in a safe place, with meals three times a day, um, with nursing care. So for me, it's been amazing to have this opportunity to put folks into these places that really show them like they're worth it. These are dignified places that they can be and, and feel safe and rest and make sure that um, we're doing everything we can to keep them healthy. Yeah, dignified places are necessary for one's uh, healing and one's ability to just think and be able to come up with like, what's the next thing to do? I appreciate you sharing that. I'd like to know what's been the hardest part of working in the pandemic? I think there are a couple pieces that are the hardest part. One is just recognizing the population that we work with and the folks who we try to serve every day um, and the heightened vulnerability that exists. And already coming into the situation, knowing that the problem in front of us seems impossible to solve. There are just so many people um, who need help and need interventions and limited resources to do it. So in a crisis like this, where there's fear instilled and there's a public health risk like we've never seen before, the pressure to move very, very quickly is very real. Um, and it's not only with the folks who are you know, at LASA and in leadership, it's our entire system. Um, and how do you take something from you know, having 30,000, 40,000 people on the street and get to move them inside as quickly as possible. So ramping up those efforts has been challenging, but also exciting. I think the other piece, and then I, I talk to my team a lot about is from more of a leadership perspective of 
how do we stay energized? How do we stay motivated? And how do we also take care of ourselves in this time when it feels like even taking three to four hours off during a, a weekend um, feels not okay because you you feel the weight of the crisis and you feel the weight of things needing to move forward. So I've been working a lot with my team on making sure people are taking just a couple hours off here and there um, because they're working seven days a week and keeping our workforce healthy and motivated so that they can make sure that they're practicing self-care and kind of modeling that for everybody else. So especially in a moment like this where we don't necessarily know where the end of the tunnel is, um, it's important that we're making deliberate action to protect ourselves and others. Heidi, can you also talk about the challenges that come from having to learn um, new systems? One of the things I've seen is we're having to work with a whole new group of actors and partners that traditionally we haven't worked with in the homeless system. Yeah, that's been a really interesting experience to go through. I think we have learned more about public health. We've learned more about emergency management in this context. Um, and I think in a really great way, all of those big systems have learned a lot more about the homelessness population too and some of the unique characteristics that exist and why people experiencing homelessness do require an approach that's very tailored to them that can meet their needs um, for it to be done safely and well. So um, I think across the board, there was that learning curve of us just getting to know each other and understand what it means to work together. Um, but over time, and I even in the last week or so, it's felt a little bit more like we're starting to talk each other's language um, in in a way that we hadn't, and that there's kind of a mutual recognition of the tensions and the challenges that exist with all of our organizations and with all of our different focus that we need to have, but understanding that there are these populations that we just have to have um, tailored responses for because it's the only way to make sure that they're safe and we're truly addressing the need. So it's been a moment for all of us, I think, to come together with a common goal and build those relationships, which I am confident are going to only benefit us when we come out on the other side of this. Yeah, I think sometimes for new actors um, and new partners that we have to work with, it's hard for them to understand the unique needs of people experiencing homelessness and the mm -hmm. challenges they face in accessing resources. Um, even things as simple as like, I know some of the early guidance was like, we'll just refer people to their medical provider. Well, yeah. if you don't have a medical provider and you have incredible barriers to getting to a medical provider, mm -hmm. referring someone to their medical provider isn't going to solve the problem. So I know we've had to do a lot of education. Yeah. Um, one of the things that uh, we talk a lot about on this podcast uh, is issues of justice and equity and racial inequity, um, which we know is a long-standing issue in homelessness, the racial disparities. Can you talk a little bit about how you're seeing the racial disparities manifest themselves during the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a really critical point, not only for LA and the work that really Los Angeles has spearheaded through our work on race equity, but just also across the entire country. Um, you know, we have been working with some of the researchers like Randall Kuhn and Dennis Colhane, who have started to look at the impacts of COVID-19 on the homeless population more broadly um, and asking them to take a deeper dive in that to better understand what the impacts of that could or would be for uh, Black Africans, Americans, particularly who are experiencing homelessness. And I think it's something they're still digging into, but there are a few truths that we know. Um, one is that 
African Americans make up 42% of our homeless population, but 8% of the general population. So before we could even look more at excess exposure and excess vulnerability, we have to recognize that that in and of itself is a disparity, which is going to have a significant impact on their ability to remain safe and remain healthy. So making sure we're targeting that is critical. There are a few things that we've started to build out and are monitoring uh, in our project room key. As an example, we've built out dashboards so we can make sure that we're intentional and we're tracking things like gender, race, ethnicity, breakouts, who we're serving, um, where they're coming from to make sure that this lens is always a forefront. Something that I've talked to my colleagues in Seattle about quite a bit because they're a few weeks ahead of us is that in these moments of crisis, it's very easy to shift from you know our intentional approach to things and making sure that we're building the muscles that we need to build around this to just crisis response and just moving forward as fast as we can. And I think what we know and what we've seen and what my colleagues in Seattle have even shared with me is that that often leads to perpetuating disparities that we all fundamentally know exist, but because our response is to be moving so quickly um, that we lose that really important lens and it hurts people in the long run. And so how do we make sure in these moments that we don't lose those things? And I think for us, data has been um, one of the key drivers in our ability to make sure that our responses and how we're building responses recognize all of the unique characteristics of this population to include but not limited to racial Yeah, it's important to take a look at how what we know and how that could uh, automatically just enforce what has already been in place and how that isn't helpful. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd like to hear like, what what have you learned during this crisis? There have been so many lessons um, that you can take out of this crisis. And for me in particular, a few really stand out. I think one is that as someone who works in the homeless services space and has for some time, um, it's been reinforcing for me that we recognize and we know what needs to happen, um, both from an intervention perspective as well as a resourcing perspective in order to make things happen. And I think the constraints that we've run into are around some of those resourcing challenges and getting broader support and recognition from the community at large and helping us to move those interventions forward. But we know what to do and we know what works. And oftentimes our ability to actually make it happen are limited by these constraints like resources or larger public buy-in. However, the second thing I have seen in this crisis is we have this moment now where we're bringing resources like we've never seen before. Um, There is a level of public understanding or buy-in or empathy or all the above that's really at play right now that's allowing us to do things that we've never been able to do before and that at some point, even outside of this COVID crisis, would seem unimaginable. So having the business community step in the way they are and even these big hotels and motels to say, well, I'll open up my doors. This is my sense of civic duty. This is the right thing to do. Um, Let's bring people inside. So people who you would never think would say yes to things like this are saying yes, because suddenly our, our humanity is kind of what unites all of it. It's not about our socioeconomic status or our background. And so my biggest goal right now is to make sure that we're taking these resources, we're taking this momentum, and we're building it in a way that is unstoppable. 
and capturing it in a way so we can look back to it and again look at what we've been learning through this because I think there are just so many different pieces to this but I think having the commitment and the buy-in of the community having the commitment buy-in of our partners and having the true resources that are needed to stem this crisis and to make visible differences in people's lives are coming to us right now so let's do everything we can while we have that and capture it so we there's no other option but to keep going quickly once this crisis is over. And can you talk more about what you'd like the future to look like? How could our future be different after this pandemic? I think one is we now all have a shared experience as humans of this COVID-19 crisis, whether you are experiencing homelessness, whether you're in a nursing home, whether you live um, in Beverly Hills, everybody has this unifying experience that we can draw on together. And I think that's super important in this context and thinking about how we relate to each other and how we treat each other. And my hope is that in moving this forward, we continue to drive forward this culture of yes, um, that we all need to do our parts in making sure that we are getting folks inside and we are getting folks the help that they need and that they deserve. So this sense of neighborhood and the sense of saying yes is one piece that I don't wanna lose um, as we come on the other side of it. The other thing, and we mentioned it a little bit earlier, Molly, was this idea of all of the different big systems coming together to address a crisis, I think is imperative, Um, not only in how we're resourcing things and how fast we've been able to move because we just, if there's a barrier in the way, we figure out a way to either push it down or or go around it. And um, that's not exclusive to LASA, that's between the city and the county and all of the departments within both of those entities and even the state really jumping in in a different way. So when all of these resources come together and all of these entities align to a common goal, we can make some really, really fast, significant progress that saves people's lives. That's great. Thank you. Really appreciate the incredible work that you and your team are doing. I know it's been an extraordinary lift um, and it's just incredible what you're achieving and really inspiring. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate the leadership that you're taking on in this uh, pandemic. And even before I seen how you came in and you sat with us and you introduced yourself to us and you We're ready to learn from all partners, and um, I truly appreciate that, and I I look forward to seeing how the partnerships expand during this crisis and even afterwards. Yeah, me too. Thank you. We hope that all of our listeners are staying safe during these challenging times. If you're one of the lucky ones who still has a job and financial means, please consider making a donation to any of the amazing homeless services organizations who are working on the front lines of the crisis. We are praying that all of you are well and sending you lots of love. Stay safe. We're closing today's episode with a prayer from Gloria Johnson. Gloria started us off with today's episode, and we're really looking forward to hearing this prayer that she shares with us. Dear God, I pray that I never be a person who refuses to help your children. I desire to be a helping hand to as many people as I possibly can be. Father, may I never be stingy with your assistance. And there is no gain in living that way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And um, what that pretty much means is that it's okay that sometimes we don't have monetary things to give or sometimes 
we can offer our kind words, a smile, a friendly gesture, just to let people know that we're there and we're standing um, aside them and um, we're not walking in front of them and they're not walking behind us, but they're walking side by side. So sometimes it's okay to give your time, give your uh, affection, your compassion, your empathy to others, to let them know that they're still important, to let them know that they have not been forgotten. We hope that you'll keep listening and subscribe to the podcast, rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Please reach out by emailing us at housingjusticepodcast. Again, that's housingjusticepodcast at gmail.com. We welcome your questions and we will have a question and answer episode later in the season. So reach out and ask any question you have about homelessness in LA. Housing Justice LA is Lorraine Cantley. Molly Reisman. Bill Lance. New Dad. Our music is provided by Adam Goldman. Special thanks to Anne English for her support and work on the CSH Speak Up program. This podcast is produced on Tongva land in Los Angeles and made possible through a Stanton Fellowship from the Durfee Foundation.